0: No, I'm not Faust, um, and um, I, I, I hope I'm a scientist, um, so this is going to be a portrait of the modern scientist. Uh, it will not be entirely flattering, so I need to start with a disclaimer. Um, I do science for a living. I, aside from that, I even believe in doing science for a living, um, and I do what other scientists do, which is to investigate nature in a particular way. Uh, So I'm going to offer some criticism, um, but there's an important point to keep in mind, and that is that nothing I say is actually against science. It's at worst uh, against a particular way of doing science, uh, and likewise technology. Now, before I start uh, launching on uh, talking about three versions of the Faust legend, three in particular, I want to give a premise about, what, about the relationship between uh, science and technology, and then I want to offer a definition of this uh, $10 word, the palimpsest. Um, okay, consider these four objects. We have a volleyball, a basketball, a volleyball net, and a basketball net. Now, there are two obvious possibilities about how you group these into two pairs of two. Um, You can group them morphologically as shown here, the two spherical objects and the two nets. Uh, You can group them together that way or you can group them together functionally. The volleyball will go with the volleyball net, the basketball with the basketball net. Okay, now consider these four entities, science, technology, religion, and magic. Um, And to a new atheist or perhaps an old one, uh, they might want to group uh, science with technology um, and uh, um, as opposed to religion and magic, considering religion to be only such, uh, so much hocus-pocus. Now, with a little bit less hostility to religion, Um, one can group science together with religion as two ways of knowing about the world, whereas technology and magic are two ways of imposing our will on nature. So one has to do with knowing, and the other one has to do with doing in some way. Um, Now, I don't have space to develop uh, this idea, and will only state it as a premise, um, which is, this is a quote from Lawrence J. Henderson, Uh, The scientists in the group may recognize Henderson of the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation. Uh, He wrote in 1917, science owes more to the steam engine uh, than the steam engine owes to science, and anyone who's had to work through uh, the Carnot cycle in detail knows that this is certainly true. Science follows, learns from technology, so this is certainly one value of technology among many others. Uh, I contend that there is less traffic in the other direction. Uh, Beyond the steam engine and the biological sciences, consider Jenner's development, I won't quite say discovery, of the smallpox vaccine. In terms of modern biology, he literally knew nothing. He didn't know what he was doing. And yet, he managed to invent an an effective vaccine, the uh, the first one that became widely used. Um, In the 20th century, in my own field, um, we knew about those plaques that occur in Alzheimer's disease long before we knew what a protein was. And um, studying those plaques helps to elucidate how proteins work normally and how they also work abnormally. One doesn't want to be stark about this. Scientific knowledge, of course, does lead to new technology. It works in both directions. And technology always has something somewhat scientific about it, even if there's no deep understanding or or, uh, uh, understanding of theory or mechanism. It's a two-way street, but my contention is that the preponderance of traffic is from the practical and the mundane uh, into theoretical knowledge. Okay, now that definition, a palimpsest, what is a palimpsest? Palimpsest is a manuscript page or a painting in which one layer has been scraped off or covered over so that the medium can be used again. The word originated from the practice of scraping off ancient scrolls and reusing the material uh, for a new document. Uh, Here's one example and here's another very famous one which is called the Archimedes Parchment. A copy of the mathematician's work was overwritten by a liturgical text. And this uh, word palimpsest is also used to describe paintings beneath another painting. Um, Freud uh, used this term in his essay, The Magic Writing Pad, and uh, here is a picture of it. This was a popular toy when I was uh, a a young boy, um, uh, sometime before the Peloponnesian War. And um, this is a metaphor for the retention of repressed memories in the unconscious mind in Freud's use. He used similar metaphors elsewhere to speak of an important property of the mind that we forget things but we retain traces of them perhaps unconsciously of past memories and events and these traces can emerge in surprising ways in dreams and other mental phenomena. Now my point in using this term is that what we call a scientist is not a constant. It's a word that's used like all other words with a particular context and time and place. Um, So I find the word palimpsest useful for thinking about what a scientist is. And so in the remainder of the talk, I'm gonna describe three Faust stories uh, and argue that these represent scientists at different periods of time. But in calling this a palimpsest, what I'm implying is that even in the modern scientists, we we retain traces of the earlier versions of the word. Um, The three Fausts will be the chapbook Faust written anonymously in the uh, 15th and 16th century. Uh, The second is Goethe's masterpiece, uh, Faust. And the third is Thomas Mann's late masterpiece, Dr. Faustus. Now, here's a palimpsest with the magic slate. Now, I'm not the first one to point out that notwithstanding uh, notable exceptions, the Faust story is a very Protestant story. Uh, Its history coincides roughly with the emergence of the Protestant Reformation, continues through the scientific and industrial revolutions. I'm aware that these terms are risky, so be it. Knowledge has always been problematical, but with the Faust legend, uh, it became much more so. Um, despite some dramatic representations of the Catholic Church as uh, in the medieval period and before and after as suppressing science, um, despite the fact that occasionally this uh, has even been uh, deserved uh, representation, for the most part, for the most part, the Church was and remains a very congenial place for science. Thomas Aquinas notably taught that faith and reason could not contradict one another, Um, He was not especially interested in natural science, but he certainly believed in it. He was in favor of it. More recently, Pope John Paul II wrote in his encyclical letter of 1998, called Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. He said that faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth and God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth. Such words in their essence, though not the prose style, could have been written by Aquinas 750 years earlier. Now, in the Faust stories, uh, knowledge becomes distinctly more problematical. And what they have, these three Faust stories that I'm going to describe, have in common is the quest for forbidden knowledge. Very different types. Uh, but in all all cases, the human being makes a deal with the devil or engages in a wager with the devil to get at knowledge. Now, devil was meant literally in the chapbooks, metaphorically in Goethe and Mann, but the point remains the same. Uh, Obtaining knowledge requires transgressing some proper limit. In modern times, many of the concerns about forbidden knowledge have been transferred onto sci-fi films and uh, fiction, which often portray dystopian uh, visions of the harm that science and technology can do. Now I, I ask you to bear in mind through the remainder of talk what I've already said about the distinction between science and technology, these are very intertwined but much of the anxiety about science, I think, belongs more properly to technology by which we try to control nature, both human and otherwise. To start with the chapbook um, Faust, uh, this is the scientist as the confidence man, as the con man. The earliest version of the Faust chapbook that we have uh, um, extant is, was published in 1587, Uh, unknown author, the publisher was uh, uh, Johann Spies at Frankfurt, Um, and the anonymous author's um, intention was both to entertain and to improve. Uh, The tale purported to be based on a historical figure probably named George Faust. Um, The claim of the author was that the chapbook represented the biography of a presumptuous man, an aging scholar whose dissatisfaction with the God-given limits to human knowledge led to his downfall. Uh, In the first part of the story, uh, his dissatisfaction and intellectual restlessness led him to make the infamous pact with the devil. There's a long middle section, which contains disputations uh, bearing only a hint of the fading splendor of the medieval disputationis. Faust queries the devil, then demonstrates his skill as an astrologer and a caster of horoscopes as he journeys over the earth, but in the end, his power is put to trivial purposes solely to pursue his swinish and epicurean life. And in the closing chapters, which represent his last weeks on earth, uh, he uh, laments over his sinfulness, and that is followed by a gruesome death. Uh, to be sure, this is atritio, not contritio, fretting of the heart rather than true remorse for his sinfulness, for he fears the pains of hell to which he is straightaway headed. Um, the Faust of the chapbooks is a fool, a mountback, a charlatan, intellectually lazy, lustful in all senses of the word. Despite being a scholar of many fields, including theology, he is easily gulled and duped by the devil. As this quote shows, he thought the devil was not so black as he has painted, and hell was not so hot as people say. In short, the author of the chapbooks was an appallingly narrow-minded man who moralized constantly and tediously, and underlying this tale is a radical mistrust of knowledge, a sense that the pursuit of knowledge for anything but obviously practical ends is not to be trusted. Reason can lead us astray. Superficially, his doctrine resembles that of Luther's sola scripturis, uh, only it is far narrower and far more bigoted. Um, he is a cousin to many modern-day populist politicians. As for Faust, he is the scientist as conman, indiscriminately blending technology and magic to bend the world to his will. His lust for power is uh, libido dominandi. Um, with excessive power that he derives from magic, he becomes increasingly immoral, sinks into bestiality. Power does corrupt here and elsewhere. Um, and if we want to draw a lesson from this that I think is still ba- uh, valid, it is that such power and domination never can lead to happiness. Now, um, one sometimes hears of the Faustian quest for knowledge. This is a kind of a cliche, but in reality, uh, this Faust does not seek knowledge per se. Actually, he is fatigued and fed up with science. Uh, he leaves science. What he wants is technology and magic, especially the latter indiscriminately blended, or more accurately, we would say, not distinguished from one another, mainly magic, however. Uh, It's his goal to transfer his wishes directly onto nature, uh, to improve, uh, to move people and things according to his own will. Faust's forbidden knowledge is magical because it is esoterica. Now, actual science Um, and technology can be extraordinarily complicated, but they're never truly esoteric, because esoterica refers to special and private knowledge available only to a few uh, initiates. Science is sometimes called esoteric, but it really isn't. For example, Richard Feynman once quipped, I think it is fair to say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. I mean, he was, of course, won the Nobel Prize for his discoveries in quantum mechanics. Um, As someone who does NMR spectroscopy, I can tell you that no one understands quantum mechanics. Um, That's a joke, by the way. Um, It's based on the fact that quantum mechanics is bloody difficult, and many people ultimately do fail to understand it, but no one, absolutely no one, is debarred from trying to do so. There are no secret handshakes here, and that is in contrast to Faust's esoterica, uh, science belongs to the world. Now we see a remnant of such magical thinking in modern technology. Much of technology, though it's based on science, uh, sometimes aims to be idiot-proof. And so to the idiots, and believe me, I'm one of them, um, uh, uh, um, such technology is really no different from magic. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be damned if I understand how my television works uh, or how the remote works, uh, or it usually works anyway. Um, Okay, so, so much for uh, the chapbook Faust, we'll move on to Goethe's uh, Faust, and the difference uh, uh, there to the naive author of the chapbooks is absolutely startling. And yet, Goethe's drama is also, Goethe the character, uh, excuse me, Faust the character, is also down on reason and science in a way. He is also down, not only on science, but also on theology. And um, in contrast to many moderns, he doesn't really see uh, science or religion uh, as one superior, inherently superior to the other. He's down on both of them. Now, to the author of the chapbook Faust, knowledge itself was suspect. With Christopher Marlowe's play, which is one of the other Fausts that I won't get a chance to talk about, knowledge becomes noble but it's still dangerous and suspect. So that's why Marlowe's play is a great tragedy, because there's a conflict between the noble impulse to knowledge and the dangers of knowledge. But when we come to Goethe's drama, knowledge is no longer quite the issue. Um, Goethe's portrait of Faust is very nuanced, complex, Uh, When we first meet him, he's in a suicidal despair about the sterility of academic pursuits, including science and theology. Uh, He's followed them to uh, their dreary end. Uh, They have failed to bring him enlightenment. um, And early in the drama, um, one of the things he laments is the failure of his physician father to cure the plague. And he notes bitterly that his father probably killed more patients than he cured. Uh, In some ways, at the beginning, this is similar to Marlowe's Faust in that Goethe's protagonist, early on, is portrayed somewhat sympathetically. Um, His desire for knowledge seems to be, at first, a tragic flaw in an otherwise noble man. But the theme soon gives way to something else. He's not merely bored, um, and in contrast to Marlowe's Faust, he's not merely dissatisfied with the inadequacy of his knowledge, Goethe's Faust shares with Descartes and Bacon, as different as they were, a scorn for speculative knowledge without practical or experiential consequences. For Descartes and for Bacon, practical knowledge was knowledge uh, that would, and here's a quote from uh, from Descartes, render us masters and possessors of nature. Uh, And indeed, for most of Goethe's drama, one doubts that what Faust seeks should be called knowledge at all. His despair leads uh, to his meeting with Mephistopheles with whom he makes a wager. It's not a pact as in the chapbooks, it's a wager. And as is well known, Faust's wager with the devil is that he will strive endlessly, that he will never cease, never stop, never savor any moment. Uh, To stop and savor the moment would be to lose the wager. Such continuous striving is an aesthetic formulation of time and experience, in that it strives to transcend time itself. Now, one of the major differences between Goethe's Faust and all previous versions, with the exception of Lessing's fragment on which Goethe's is partly based, is that Faust is, in Goethe is saved in the end, um, rather than being damned to the eternal torments of hell. But this is not a Christian conception of salvation and damnation. In fact, neither Faust nor Mephistopheles uh, even mentions damnation and salvation as they make their wager. The work remains, remains decidedly non-Christian to the end. Um, And the author himself described himself as decidedly non-Christian. So this is true in spite of the plethora, for those of you who have read it, the plethora of saints and angels who descend in the last scene uh, to save Faust from Mephistopheles. I think the use of this Christian iconography serves a distinctly and complexly uh, ironical literary function. Unfortunately, I won't have the time to go into it, but I'll simply caution against taking the Christian iconography straight up. Um, In Faust's subsequent actions through part one of the drama, he is a total cad, a real dot, dot, dot. Um, He seduces, corrupts, impregnates the naive Margareta, then he abandons her. He is responsible indirectly for her death, the death of her mother, the death of her brother, the death of their child. Um, exactly why such a man should be saved, no matter how you define the term, uh, raises very profound questions about our conceptions of right and wrong. Readers of Faust are sometimes divided into two schools, the perfectibilists and the anti-perfectibilists. The perfectibilists uh, believe that Faust in part two overcomes some of the reprehensible traits he showed in part one of the drama. The anti-perfectibilists on the other hand maintain that while Faust perhaps changes some of the ways in which he acts badly, he never improves morally in the course of the drama. Now, where do I stand? I am more toward the anti-perfectibilist school but I differ somewhat from them as well uh, because what they see is a failure of Faust to improve. Now I would say rather that Faust never ever gives a damn about good and evil, uh, nor about heaven and hell. In other words, uh, this is not immorality or sinfulness, Uh, Faust is amoral, he is beyond good and evil. Now, Nietzsche uh, wrote somewhat about Goethe's Faust, uh, but I would, and didn't, uh, had some misgivings about it, um, but I would say that Zarathustra um, owes more to Faust than Nietzsche wanted to uh, acknowledge. Um, Many perfectibilist readers base their view on Faust's earnest and continuous striving, and especially on his community-directed project in the last part, in the last acts of part two. Uh, He reclaims land from the sea. He has a big engineering project to reclaim land from the sea, and this is is a metaphor as well as, uh, metaphorically as well as literally. He seems to view himself as building a great utopian community. Um, uh, there is a choir of angels after Faust has died, um, and in my own humble opinion, they cheat Mephistopheles out of his rightful prize, but here is, here is a quote uh, um, from them. Um, Saved is the noble member of the spirit world from evil. Um, whoever, uh, whoever never ce- ceases, uh, ceases uh, striving, him we can redeem. And if even love from above has taken interest in him, the heavenly host meets him with a loving welcome. Okay, so that's what the angels say, and the perfectibilists want to claim that therefore Faust, from his because he's endlessly striving, deserves to be uh, saved. Now, I am gonna tell you that this ending raises at least as many questions as it answers. Let's make a few observations. First, it seems to argue that Faust, now dead and a member of the spirit world can be redeemed on account of his endless striving. The second part of the quote, however, completely reverses the first part by talking about the redemptive power of heavenly love. Uh, To give some uh, hint at the complexity of this issue, let's also note that God is not mentioned in this speech or in any other part of the, of, the, uh, of, of the last scene with all the angels and saints. And indeed, there's only one appearance of God in the entire work, and that's in the prologue in heaven. And there, significantly, he's not even called God, he's called the Lord. Goethe does not use the G word. Now, this ending plays with a central theological question, which is, what is the basis of salvation in particular? the Pelagian view that good works are sufficient for salvation against the Augustinian argument for the requirement of divine grace. The first part of this quote argues, um, uh, speaks of Faust's good work works, and the second speaks of divine love. Now, even if we assume that Goethe would base uh, Faust's salvation on Pelagianism, uh, which I find very, very doubtful in the extreme, it would take an extraordinarily selective reading of the drama to see his great project as, uh, as good works justifying salvation. For one thing, it requires us to ignore or forgive his many, many, many bad works before the project. Among them, in addition to his reprehensible treatment of Gretchen and her family and their child, let's count the following. First is he engages in medical malpractice. He continues to treat patients after he knows that he is giving them poison. Uh, Then there there is his continuing sexual predation. It's not just Gretchen. In part two, he chases Helen of Troy. Uh, there's economic fraud in his paper money scheme. That's followed by warmongering against the anti-emperor, which is followed by war crimes in these battles. Then there's the human exploitation of his so-called great project. He acknowledges that the workers on his project are slaves. They're merely conscripted for labor. labor. And as for the great project itself, it causes ecological devastation, which he acknowledges and notes that his project at the end of his life is already falling apart and the land that he reclaimed from the sea is already turning into a swamp. And then, the topper of them all, uh, there is the brutal murder of the pious old couple Bausis and Philemon and their guest, the Traveler. Aside from that, Faust is just fine. Now, to appropriate a question from Paul Ricoeur, we can ask, what kind of salvation goes with this kind of evil? Furthermore, let's talk about the great project itself. Um, I think that makes it dubious, it is dubious that that should be called a good work at all. Um, Now, it's true that he has moved here (coughs) beyond uh, the personal sphere to the communal, yet his motivations are clearly ones of (coughs) self-aggrand... Excuse me self-aggrandizement. He does at one point um, make a statement shunning fame while exalting the deed itself. Uh, ditatis alas nicht derum. Um, but then he belies this notion in the end when he utters his last words to speak of the supreme moment uh, and he says, the trace of my days in earth cannot perish for eons. In anticipation of su- such sublime happiness I now Enjoy the supreme moment." Now, first of all, this is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, his sta- this statement is actually full of ironies. He exalts his own deeds by speaking in utopian terms earlier of, a, of building a nation of free and equal members, yet it's very clear that this is completely false. There is, as I said, the slave labor he conscripts and exploits, for another, he makes this statement after he has been blinded, and the blindness is metaphorical as well as literal. Um, he thinks that he hears the sounds of shovels digging canals, but they, these are in fact the ghoulish, um, the, um, the ghoulish lemurs, um, who are not the cute little mammals from Madagascar, they're Roman deities, uh, ghoulish uh, um, vampire-like, uh, or, excuse me, zo- have, you have to know your, this is Halloween, you have to know this, um, zombie-like spirits of the, of the restless dead in Roman mythology. So the Lemuras are actually digging his grave and he thinks it's the workers um, uh, digging uh, canals with their shovels. Um, it's very clear who's in charge of this so-called utopia. It's in the diabolical hands of Mephistopheles. He's about to die and the rule will be taken over 100% by Mephistopheles. And again, um, he is indirectly, or as we would now say, passive-aggressively responsible for the deaths of the pious old couple, uh, Baucis and Philemon. He is killed, why did he kill them, or have them killed? Uh, for no other reason than that they reside on a piece of land he doesn't own. Uh, He doesn't need it, he has plenty of land, kills them anyway because their ownership is an affront to him. Now, we, living in 2014, are in a better position to see than Goethe was that control of nature, even if the motives are good, even if the motives are good, is a very mixed bag. Goethe, of course, did not know about global warming, but we do nor could he have, anticip- he have anticipated the potential perils of biotechnology. But he did see smoke billing from factories in the new industrial age. Bausis, the pious old woman, who is more skeptical about Faust's project than her naive husband, Philemon, notice, notices something odd about the project. So she says, knaves in vain by day, uh, by." Oh, different translation. In the daytime noisy workmen hacked and shoveled, all in vain. Where at night small fires flickered, there was a dam the following day. Human lives were sacrificed. Groans of torment filled the darkness. Fires flowed down to the sea. There at dawn was a canal. Now why I mention this is that technology is sometimes divided into material technology, machines, gizmos, that kind of thing, And non-material technology, which is, for example, uh, bureaucratic organization, psychological organization of uh, uh, the the, the two different aspects of technology, the material and the non-material. Now it's been said of Faust that his technology is solely non-material technology, that he organizes workforces and the like. Um, but this passage shows that that's not true. There are infernal machines at work too, and I think uh, Goethe's source was likely to have been uh, the factories that he saw in operation. Um, and um, a- as Bausis uh, summarizes at one point um, about Faust's whole project, there was something not right about the whole business, and she, like all the other female characters in, uh, in the play, really doesn't care for Mephistopheles one bit. Now, um, one uh, additional point about foul salvation um, is, that, um, is that he never, never repents, never shows any contrition for his evil ways, never even shows that he cares about, uh, wants to be saved or anything like this. So, um, and so here's um, uh, one more quote um, from uh, early on in the play. The other side can little worry me if first you smash this world to pieces, the other the other may rise, uh, afterwards arise. I don't want to hear anything about, about it, whether one hates or loves in the future and also whether in those spheres there is an above or below. He doesn't care about heaven and hell. He doesn't care about salvation or damnation. Um, and um, the beginning of part two, there is this quote uh, sung uh, uh, after... the the melodrama in which Gretchen and her family uh, are all all die horrible deaths. Uh, There is no explanation about what happens to Faust, whether he has any memory of this whatsoever. He just awakens in a charming landscape and he's sung to by the sprite Ariel that Goethe borrowed from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Uh, But Ariel, this is one of the things that Ariel sings, uh, compose uh, the angry strife within his breast, remove the burning barbs of his remorse and purge him of all sense of horror. Well, you know, uh, for moral behavior, um, burning barbs of remorse are actually a good thing. Sometimes you're supposed to have those things. Um, and, uh, and yet Faust clearly does not. Um, last point I want to make about Goethe's Faust has to do with what I think may be um, the, uh, the most grievous aspect of Faust's grand project, um, uh, we can look at it, I think, as technological triumphalism. But then, if we do that, we're gonna have to say what is wrong with technological triumphalism. Now, of course, the, the grand utilitarian project of reclaiming land from the sea, according to some people, not me, uh, the basis for, Fa- for Faust's salvation is remarkably short on details. That's a trait that I find common to all grandiose schemes. Uh, That's why I think maybe we ought to run like the Dickens from them. Um, But, um, uh, and why I call this triumphalist, it's trumpeted in the absence of any demonstrated value, um, um, along with some uh, well-demonstrated harm. Triumphalism, um, reached uh, about technology, especially uh, reached an especially crude form in the 19th century. If you've ever read Chernyshevsky's uh, not very good novel, uh, What Is To Be Done, you see a fine example of that. Um, one can argue that dystopian literature and film uh, represents a reaction against technological triumphalism, especially in the wake of real society, societal ills. Um, following technological development and urbanization. Um, Dystopian fiction and films show several fears about science and technology. First, there is the fear that scientists and technologists may overestimate their own competence, and one must admit that this sometimes happens, and that runs the risk of bringing disaster about everyone's head. An example of that in literature would be the Frankenstein story. Um, There's also the fear um, that science will actually succeed. And if it succeeds, what will it do to human beings? Will it reduce human beings to mechanisms that can be controlled? I think these are genuine worries. But aside from these, uh, there's one more worry, one more dystopian fear about endless technological striving that I'd like to mention. And that is that there is no goal. There is no end. There's no telos at all. No clear sense of where we're going or for what purpose. Uh, To put this another way, um, we can say about Goethe's Faust the same thing that was said about Mr. Kurtz in Joseph Conrad's novel Heart of Darkness, and I have a quote from that here. Um, Mr. Marlowe is a representative of the otherwise unnamed company that trades ivory in the Congo, and he's uh, asked here um, whether... Here... Um, He's asked um, by uh, another member of the company, um, uh, um, uh, he's asked, uh, well, they're discussing uh, Kurtz and um, the other member of the company says the method is unsound. And Marlowe says, do you, said I, looking at the shore, call it unsound method? Uh, Without doubt, he exclaimed hotly, don't you? And Marlowe replies, no method at all. Now, this line is so familiar from literature uh, that it may not be obvious what is meant by the word method here, because clearly in the context of Conrad's novel, um, method, uh, no method at all, that does not mean that Kurtz doesn't know how to get ivory because he clearly excels at that. He's amassed a great quantity of the best kind of ivory, the antique kind, so we can say that technically uh, he's exceptionally capable, and yet the other characters in the novel all know that Marlo, that Kurtz is mad. Um, we can fill in the blanks here. Why is Kurtz mad? He has lost his self. Um, his self has been submerged in the techniques of obtaining masses of ivory. That is what's meant by no method at all. That is, there is no he. There is no person. He is simply an ivory-obtaining machine. Or to put it another way, the arrows are being shot, but there's no target, uh, no telos beyond the technology itself. And this is my claim for Faust as well. What is the goal here? Where are we going and why? Where is the telos? Why all this striving? Uh, I, uh, I would like to give a, um, a uh, name to this, um, to this uh, um, type of teloless technological striving, and that is the title of this slide, The Autonomy of the Pursuit. The Pursuit Becomes Everything Itself. Now, I've raised a number of explicit questions about technology, and more implicitly, ones about science. These are mostly questions about goals and limits and it's clear that these two things, goals and limits, need to be thought about together. I find that sci-fi films are very adept at explaining dystopic possibilities of unnamed or poorly aimed endless technological and scientific striving. In particular, I'm interested in the bioethical questions. I don't have time for, unfortunately, uh, much discussion of this, but perhaps we can come back to it in the discussion. Uh, in the interest of getting on to the third Faust, I'm going to put this aside for now. And we come now to the uh, third Faust, which is uh, Thomas Mann's uh, great late uh, masterpiece uh, called Dr. Faustus, the life of the German composer Adrian Leverkuhn, told by a friend. Um, this is of course about a musician, not about a scientist. So. Um, this requires us to make some uh, slightly distant analogies, uh, but I think they're not quite so distant as one might think at first. Um, Mann began writing this novel in 1943. Um, He was in exile, he was in the US, uh, he was completing his Joseph Tetralogy, Joseph and his brothers, uh, but he had actually conceived of a novel about an artist who makes a pact with the devil as early as 1904. Um, Mann analogizes the impasse of the 20th century of 20th century music to that of 20th century Germany. Um, He stressed music's dualistic nature, or as Mann puns, its duplicitous nature. On one hand, music is coldly analytical, almost a mathematical puzzle, and Mann's protagonist, Adrian Leverkuhn, um, start, starting in childhood, seem more inclined to mathematics than music. But on the other hand, music is also inchoate, inarticulate, wordless, a thing of dense emotionality. Now, to Mann, uh, Germany was a nation of the middle. It had these two sides, uh, one side being abstract and philosophical, the other one being emotional and wordless and inchoate. And these two sides also correspond roughly, as uh, some of you may have uh, uh, surmised, to the Apollonian and the Dionysian sides of music in Nietzsche's analysis, of which Mann makes a great deal of use. Now, also in the 20th century, there was an impasse in music. Uh, There was a sense that tonal music was at its end. It was spent, it was done with. Uh, And then to prolong it would be to crash into the Scylla and Charybdis facing the 20th century art. You have parody on one side, kitsch on the other. Leverkun's music used the 12 tone scale. Mann appropriated, appropriated this from Schoenberg by way of Theodore Adorno's interpretations. But brilliant, if you've ever heard Schoenberg, you'll know what I'm talking about. Brilliant as Leverkun's music was, it was like Leverkun himself, cold and overly intellectual, even sterile. So Leverkuhn became convinced that his music needed the Dionysian element. It was too much on the Apollonian side. But in the context of his native Bavaria and his Lutheran background, uh, the Dionysian got melded into the northern demonic, uh, the deviltry uh, in which the early chapbooks dealt. To enter into this world was to pass not merely beyond the bounds of humane bourgeois conventionality, but also to surpass even, or go beyond the paganism of Wagner, even to barbarity. And in this sense, it was uh, an attempt to return to the wild dithyram, uh, the wild hymn to Bacchus, in which Nietzsche saw the uh, origin of music. Uh, this was uh, in, um, in Mann's novel, to traffic with the demonic in search of the breakthrough, a term redolent of Nietzscheanism, or at least Mann's understanding of Nietzscheanism. Now this, um, this brilliant novel is long and complex. It's as thematically luxuriant as uh, Goethe's drama, so I'm uh, forced to give only a brief summary and then to select two parts for analysis, which will be the early childhood memory of Leverkun's father, and uh, his Prodigies of Nature, and the second will be chapter 25 in which Leverkuhn uh, chats with the devil, converses with the devil. Now to summarize the plot of this novel very briefly, it is, uh, as, as, uh, as you've heard, a biography of the composer as told by a narrator who is also a character. His name is Serenus Zeitblum, um, and uh, this, uh, Zeitblum was the childhood companion of Leverkuhn and lifelong friend. When uh, Zeitblum begins telling his story in 1943, he's a retired teacher, he didn't want to retire, he was forced to by the Nazi government, he's a humanist, and he was significantly a member of the Catholic minority while Leverkun was Lutheran. Zeitblum's sons are at the war warfront, uh, and throughout the book, terminating in 1945, Zeitblum interweaves Uh, Leverkun's story with a horrified vision of the events leading to the moral collapse of Germany. At times he speaks in a biblical cadence uh, foretelling, like Ezekiel, the coming ruin of his nation. Mostly, however, he relates the story as a concerned, though somewhat distant, observer. uh, Living in Germany, Uh, it's very clear that he's not really a part of what is uh, happening there. Now the brilliant Leverkuhn, whom as a child everyone believed to be destined to become a mathematician, um, instead surprises everyone by opting to study theology in a Lutheran seminary. Um, He then abandons uh, theology abruptly to pursue musical composition, and there he travels to Leipzig. Um, uh, He is guided by a suspiciously red-haired guide, not to a restaurant as he had requested, but to a brothel. Uh, The sexually pure, austere, uh, and naive Leverkuhn was shocked and dismayed by this, but he resisted the prostitute's touch. Um, He had been smitten by her, however, uh, and finally, after a year of resisting, he could no longer resist. Uh, The problem was that she was diseased with syphilis. She nobly warns Leverkuhn of her disease, but nevertheless, as Zeitblum rather prudishly put it, Um, Leverkusen received, quote, all the sweetness of her womanhood. Now this encounter leads to the fateful encounter with the devil who grants Leverkusen a term of of 24 years of musical creativity in exchange for a little pittance called the human soul. Now I'll describe this uh, encounter a bit later. For most of his musical career, as I say, he's highly respected but unloved for his cold abstract music, but in the end, he achieves a musical breakthrough in his monumental and emotional final piece entitled The Lamentation of Dr. Faustus. Okay, so now let's talk about these two topics. First, uh, um, Adrian's father, Jonathan Lever-Kuhn. Um Like Faust's father in Goethe's Faust, uh, Jonathan Leverkun was a ponderer of nature. He was given to speculations about his mysteries and Mann emphasizes the grotesquery of these observations and experiments. He first of all uh, focuses on exotic Lepidoptera and sea creatures, such as this one, um, uh, Hytera esmeralda, this transparent butterfly, who's deceptive, who's uh, transparent and uh, engages in in camouflage. Now, Adrian Leverkuhn later gave this name, Hytera, uh, to the faithful prostitute from which he contracted syphilis, and of her significantly her uh, real name was Gretchen, but Adrian called her Hytera. And he even wove her name as a musical motif, H-E-A-E-E-S, H is uh, in, mu- in German musical noca- notation it's B and E-S stands for B flat. Now, where did Mann get these descriptions? Um, he, he drew upon the writings of a Swiss uh, um, zoologist, Adolf Portman, but Mann made significant, uh, those small, changes to his descriptions to give these animals a, uh, a notable sexual charge. And in Mann's words, the uh, trompe l'oeil uh, colorations of Hytera Esmeralda um, acquired an aspect of almost uh, human, uh, human duplicity. Uh, and um, Hytera, of course, uh, Mann was not the first person to uh, to use the term Hytera to describe prostitutes. This is a painting by the twentieth-century painter um, Otto Dix, uh, who was noted for his harshly realistic um, uh, depictions of uh, of Weimar Germany and the brutality of war. He's part of the Neue uh, Neu Sachlichkeit, which means objectivity uh, movement. Um, now. Coming back to Jonathan uh, Leverkun, uh, he was a ponderer of nature, he had a little laboratory, um, and um, these experiments had even greater impropriety than his studies on exotica like Hytera. Um, His homemade laboratory combined chemistry and biology and dwelt upon the boundary between the animate and the inanimate world. Father Leverkun demonstrated to the boys, young Adrian and Serenus, the devouring drop, a phenomenon called the devouring drop, perhaps of para- paraffin or volatile oil or chloroform, which behaved like an animal in, and here are some quotes, uh, seizing nourishment, keeping what suits it, rejecting what does not, um, essential, showing essential, the essential unity of the animate and so-called inanimate nature. Now, um, um, uh, he also succeeded in making a most singular culture of crystals that mimic, quote, a grotesque little landscape of various colored growths a confused vegetation of blue, green, and brown shoots which reminded one of algae mushroom and uh, attached polyps. Now, what I want to uh, focus uh, on is the reaction of these three characters uh, to these prodigies. Zeitblom remarks of these experiments, I cannot say that I enjoyed seeing this, though I I confess that I was was fascinated. And a bit later on, describing these crystalline polyps and algae, uh, he said it was the most remarkable sight I ever saw, and remarkable not so much for its appearance, strange and amazing though it was, as on account of its profoundly melancholic nature. Now in contrast to Serenus, Uh, Adrian's reaction was riotous mockery. Uh, He was sorely tempted to laugh at such displays and suppressed his laughter not always successfully, only out of respect for his father's gravity. And as for the father, um, after showing the boys uh, his equally living, um, equivocally living um, crystalline plants, he states, as Zeitblom reports, and even so they are dead, said Jonathan, and tears came into his eyes while Adrian as I saw, as of course I saw, was shaken with suppressed laughter. Now the reaction to these ponderings are curious indeed. Mana's at pains to demonstrate that the critical feature of these experiments um, is, um, is their uncanniness. And these experiments are unmistakably magical, not scientific indeed. Mann's point in inserting them so early into the novel appears precisely uh, to underscore their blurring of the distinction between science and magic. The father, significantly named Johann uh, like the original Faust, um, was uh, excited, titillated by these adventures into the magical and demonic. Now, Zeitblum, whose Catholic religious tradition stressed the harmony of science and theology and a unified truth, finds this blurring of natural science and the supernatural to be merely melancholic. And indeed, Jonathan Leverkun's obsessional blurring of the boundary between animate and in- inanimate is a clear example of, uh, of de- uh, delectatio moroso. Now, in contrast to both, Adrian finds grim, mocking hilarity in these experiments And Mann uh, describes his uh, laughter as a kind of dark giddiness, delight at the destruction of boundaries between what was traditionally kept apart. Later in the novel, Adrian attends uh, the Lutheran Seminary at Halle. He encounters two similarly ambiguous teachers who will make a similar hash of good and evil, of God and the devil. And I must remark in uh, passing that any reputable theological seminary would throw such professors out at once. Now, his brief stay in the seminary and his abrupt departure from it to become a composer paves the way for chapter 25, in which uh, Zeitblom, after Leverkun's death, uh, and therefore also near the end of the the catastrophic end of the Third Reich, reveals a document in Adrian's handwriting. Uh, reproducing his dialogue with the devil. Now Zeitblom is more comfortable in his own religious skin than uh, Leverkuhn is, and Zeitblom is horrified uh, by what he reads, not because it's uncanny or supernatural, and indeed he defaults to a naturalistic interpretation of the dialogue. Zeitblum takes the scene as either a hallucination, the result of uh, Leverkuhn's incipient madness from tertiary syphilis, or worse still, a fictional document by Leverkuhn displaying a shocking degree of cynicism, despair, and mockery. Now, there's one more alternative that Zeitblum barely considers, and then only, uh, only to uh, dismiss it um, in this quote. But if he, the visitor, the devil, um, did not exist and I'm horrified to admit that such words would allow even if only c- uh, conditionally and as a possibility for his realities, it is gruesome to think that the cynicism, the mockery and the humbug likewise come from his, Leverkusen's stricken soul. That the, um, that the devil could be ontological, ontologically real is barely admitted into the realm of possibility. Now this scene is clearly an homage to the chapter from the brothers Karamazov in which uh, Ivan Karamazov confronts the devil. It's of course possible that Leverkun, who was well read, might have been borrowing from it or paying homage to this other fictional work in his own document. But in any case, there are some points of similarity and some points of differences between the two devils. Ivan Karamazov was trained in the natural sciences at the university, his emphasis is to strenuously deny the ontological reality of the devil at all costs, to maintain that the supernatural world, including God, does not exist. And in contrast, Leverkun lives in an inspirited world of ubiquitous devils and a hidden God. And the denial of the devil's ontological uh, reality is only briefly fainted at and then abandoned. Uh, Indeed, he's far more concerned with what name to call the devil uh, than whether the devil is really there before him. The devil in both novels is a paltry, petty little devil. Ivan Karamazov is insulted to have to deal with his little devil who is a faded gentleman with threadbare clothes and a nose cold. Karamazov's devil, though witty, because he mercilessly parries uh, Ivan, is also depressingly monotonous. And in contrast, Leverkusen's devil undergoes a number of metamorphoses, like Goethe's, each persona having symbolic importance. The other trait of both devils, aside from their petty nature, is that they both bring forth an atmosphere of cold, which to both Mann and Dostoevsky is the reigning characteristic of hell rather than heat. Leverkun's devil appears as a pimp, or as Leverkun dubs him, a stritzi. Uh, this is the allusion to the earlier scene in which he was led to a, a brothel. Uh, and the devil alludes repeatedly to the spirochetes, uh, the bacteria that are now uh, devouring Leverkun's brain. Um, Adrian's devil speaks the properly hearty and homely German dialogue of dialect of uh, Adrian's native Kaiser Sachern, a fictional town in Bavaria, Uh, also similar to the dialect spoken by Professor Kumpf uh, in the Theological Seminary at Halle. Um, There are many lovely uh, details in this chapter that we won't have time to consider, so let's get to the main point. Um, the devil, in the guise of a scholar, first recapitulates several of the musical themes of the earlier chapter, but then metamorphoses, metamorphoses metamorphosizes, uh, into the traditional form of the chapbook devil, and it's in this guise um, that he uh, he discusses uh, the contractual business. As in the chapbook, uh, he gets... Um, uh, humorously legalistic, demanding that Levrakun sign the contract in his own blood. Venereal disease is referred to in both English and German as bad blood. Um, the devil um, does not exactly demand Levrakun's soul because you know what exactly would the devil do what, what does the devil do? Collect them, pile them, pile them up somewhere. Who who believes in them uh, fully anyway? Uh, certainly not Adrian Le Um No, not that. After a learned disquisition on the distinction between atritio and contritio, the devil is, by the way, a better theologian than Leverkun's teachers were, um, this devil exacts a different price, though it will amount to essentially the same thing. Leverkun asks him what this clause in the contract um, would say, and here is what uh, the devil answers. Um, uh, he says... It would say renounce. What else? Do you think jealousy is at home only in the heights and not in the deeps as well? You, fine creature well-created, are promised and betrothed to us. Thou shalt not love. I must truly laugh. Not love, poor divil. Now, um, um, when Adrian objects, he says, well, after all, Uh, It's impossible to prohibit love since our universe was created and is sustained by God's love, and there is, besides that, both human lust and human caritas to contend with. The devil will not uh, stand for such cavils, and he retorts quite plainly, my proviso was clear and upright, ordained by hell's legitimate zeal. Love is forbidden to you insofar as it warms. Your life shall be cold, hence you may love no human being." And I think it's this part of the dialogue uh, that horrifies Zeitblum the most, especially as he is writing in retrospect, knowing the manner of Adrian's death. The central concern of the rest of the novel is uh, a more explicit uh, version of the question whether Adrian, and by implication, all of Germany can be uh, redeemed. Uh, This is played out in the story of Leverkun's nephew and Leverkun's culminating composition, The Lamentation of Dr. Faustus. Now, since we um, only read Zeitblum's uh, description of the the piece and obviously can't hear it, um, it remains difficult to understand exactly what the descriptions of the cantata mean. Nevertheless, uh, here I think one can take Zeitblum at his word um, that uh, in addition to the final piece's intellectuality, this piece had an emotional impact a raw human power of expression on the majestic level of Beethoven's late masterpieces. What we can know is the words of the cantata, which consist of the repetition in 12 tone scale of this sentence, which is also uh, Dr. Faustus's lamentation in uh, the chapbooks uh, For I die as a bad and as a good Christian. And this, of course. Um, uh, uh, um, the death of um, the piece, The Lamentation of Dr. Faustus, was inspired by the death of Leverkun's little nephew, Nepomuk, whom everyone called Echo. Zeitblum described him as cherub-like, enchanting, inexpressibly sweet and pure. And Zeitblum is, of course, naturally distressed when this beautiful little child dies of meningitis. And he even expresses his own distress in terms that recall Karamazov's, Ivan Karamazov's rebellion against God's creation. Zeitblum, uh, normally pretty calm, says, ah, my God, why do I seek gentle words for the most inconceivable cruelty I have ever witnessed uh, that even today goads my heart to bitter complaint and even to revolt? Now, Adrian's torment was even greater because according to his pact, um, he was not supposed to love anybody and yet he loved his little nephew. And so when Echo died, the, the diagnosis of meningitis was beside the point Adrian blamed himself. He considered Echo's death to be the devil's revenge. So soon thereafter, Adrian gathers his friends in his home for a performance of the completed lamentation, him at the piano, It's more than a performance, it's a confession of all the sins of his life. Zeitblum and the others all watch Adrian perform the piece and then witness in horror as Adrian collapses at the end uh, for his 24 years of heightened creativity from the devil have elapsed. Uh, He sinks into madness and incapacity and after a 10 year period similar to to the length of Nietzsche's madness and presumably from the same cause, um, Leverkun dies. Now Um, As he listens to the last moments of the Lamentation, Zeitblum um, muses that there might be hope for Adrian um, out of the depths of hopelessness. And this would be a hope for redemption that is, quote, born of a religious paradox which says that out of the profoundest despair, if only as the softest of questions, a hope may germinate. Whether this paradox is real or only Zeitblum's wishful thinking for his friend, um, remains a matter of debate, but I can imagine that Mann might have hoped for uh, even such a glimmer of hope from, for Germany at this time, and such a uh, hope rests in the Christian's plaint in Leverkusen's last piece to die as a good Christian is to die in the recognition of one's uh, of the sins of one's life, that one has been a bad Christian all along, and this is true contrition. Okay. I want to draw some conclusions. Um, um, like everyone else, um, I have been reading and listening to stories about this thing, which is the Ebola virus—a transmission electron micrograph. Uh, its recent rare occurrence in uh, in people in this country, but of course, um, its uh, epidemic in West Africa. Now, <clears throat> recently, Garrison Keeler. Uh, commented about this on his show, The Prairie Home Companion. I don't listen to this show very often, but I heard about this from my wife, um, uh, a comment he made recently, and he said <clears throat> that the people um, who have caused the funding for scientific research in this country to plummet are the same ones who are now outraged that scientists aren't doing enough to, to find a cure for, uh, for the Ebola virus. Now, the, the people to whom he was uh, referring Um, are the ones who find science only in the Bible. Uh, They sometimes draw the conclusion that the Bible argues against evolution. I've written about this, I don't want to rehash it except to register my strong disagreement on this point. Uh, Science can be found outside of the Bible and none of this is against the Bible. Um, uh, But Garrison, uh, Garrison Keillor's point, I would say, is to note the hypocrisy of such people who claim to be fundamentalists Uh, and argue for uh, cutting back funding for scientific research and in other ways are against and do not support scientific research. They claim to be fundamentalists, but they're really not. They claim to believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, but they really don't. What they believe in is a concrete interpretation of the Bible, for example, insisting that the word day must refer to a 24-hour solarial day. And at the same time, At the same time, they want to live in a very modern world in which scientists could perhaps, with the proper funding, this is a commercial, um, come up with a cure for the Ebola virus and to to put in a plug for my own field of research, also for Alzheimer's disease and many other diseases uh, uh, besides these. As the saying goes, such people want to have their cake and eat it too. Now, um, as I said before, in, in the author of the chapbook Faust, Um, um, we can uh, see um, a uh, a cousin to the recent day uh, populist uh, politicians and the narrowness and hypocrisy of such people is easy to point out. Um, um, The idea that we can go back to the Garden of Eden of pre-scientific times and live out our lives solely according to the precepts of religion is a simple non-starter. Most people who claim to want to do so don't really want to do so. Uh, The author of the chapbooks, living in the 15th and 16th century, were anti-intellectual and anti-scientific, but they had a good excuse because the science, and even more so the medicine of the time, really was not very good. Um, And that's a point we see reflected in Heinrich Faust's recollection of his father's bad medicine in Goethe's drama. Now, modern uh, scientists, however, have no such excuse for we have been a witness to amazing things and we continue to be a witness to amazing things, among them medicine that actually works. Yesterday was the 100th anniversary of the birth of Jonas Salk, who was one of my childhood heroes. He remains one of my childhood heroes. I hope my childhood will never end. Um, This is Jonas Salk. Uh, the American physician and medical researcher who developed the first safe and effective vaccine for polio, and I remember when its success was uh, announced, church bells were ringing at the Triumph, and it was really something. Um, By the way, he was interviewed, he was asked about patenting uh, the vaccine, and he looked at the interviewer as if the interviewer were, were mad and asked, could you patent the sun? Nowadays, people would say, hmm, maybe we can (laughs) Um, Anyway, anyway, Um, the problem is this, Um, once we get past that point of singing the pen to to science and technology, where are we? And this is where the other Fausts come in. Um, Goethe's and Mann's Faust stories can each be read as cautionary tales in ways that differ from how one would read the chapbook Faust story. The Faust of the chapbooks is a very bad man, but that is all. He's a cousin to to Don Juan and Don Giovanni, and like the Don, he is dragged down to hell in the end because he richly deserves to be dragged down to hell. Uh, the, The moral structure of his world is intact and clear. In contrast, the Fausts of Goethe and Mann, though in very different ways, trespass far beyond this. These fausts are not merely bad, worse, they have gone beyond good and evil. They have trespassed into this, in the same sense that Raskolnikov trespasses in crime and punishment. These characters, um, these characters um, uh, demonstrate a kind of moral madness that trespasses beyond all morality. These two Faust stories are cautionary because they warn not merely about the possibility of moral madness in individuals, but about moral madness in societies as well. In Goethe's drama, uh, we see it in the so-called Great Project in which, in which Faust leaves not a utopia in which people leave in freedom and, and as equals as he believes in his blindness, Uh, but rather a dystopia ruled by Mephistopheles and his forces. And as for Mons Faustus, one might wonder why he is judged so harshly, harshly, why his last lamentation is that of the chapbook Faust for I die as both a bad and and as a good Christian. One might wonder this because after all, no matter how self-destructive he is, um, in the end, all he ever did was compose music. This is what composers are supposed to do. Um, well, of course, as Nietzsche said, uh, music is not just music. But beside this point, um, Leverkun is in large part a symbol for the German nation, uh, smoldering in its ashes at the end of World War II and at the end of the Third Reich. And thus, Leverkun stands for more than music. He stands for all the barbarity and moral madness of, uh, of these years. One of the grimmest or certainly most depressing parts of of this story includes the complicity, even the enthusiasm, for medical policies that would destroy as the expression went, quote, lives unworthy of life. I don't have time to go into this large topic, but uh, anyone who wants to read about it, I recommend Robert J. Lifton's The Nazi Doctors um, um, uh, and uh, Robert Proctor's Racial Hygiene. Uh, two very excellent books on on this subject. Suffice it to say, um, in case anyone needed convincing, that simply having good intentions and good motives and wanting to do good for humanity is just not enough. Now I want to tie these uh, two together, these two Fausts, and say what I think they say in common in spite of the many obvious differences between them. I think both of them warn against a mad society, and I want to offer a provisional definition of a mad society as one in which one group of people enslaves another. Enslavement uh, in turn consists of treating uh, human beings entirely instrumentally, which entails, though it's not limited to, the ability often put into practice to kill those people. In the case of Goethe's drama, the madness of both the protagonist and the society he built and bequeathed to Mephistopheles arose from his endless striving, what I have called the autonomy of the pursuit. And as I've said, this striving, this endless movement, but without a goal, without telos, can lead to disastrous consequences. And as for Mons Faustus, Uh, his living hell was the iciness of a universe without love. Without love, without care and regard for the other, all is permitted and one lives beyond good and evil. Now it should be obvious, but I'm going to state this just in case it isn't, but to speak of the perils of a life without an end and to speak of a life without love is in no way to say a word um, against science or even against technology properly understood. It is to say only that science and technology are always incomplete and cannot supply something else that is also needed for human flourishing. In much the same way, morality is not a limit on what a human being can be, except, of course, it prohibits human beings from being murderers, rapists, and the like. Uh, but to define what a human being is requires more than a completely dispassionate description of the human being in scientific terms, however informed by science we have to be. So biology can understand human beings accurately, but not um, adequately, as it had said. And so I want to end by with two quotes. Um, the first is from Bernard of Clairvaux, um, who said, There are those who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That is curiosity. There are those who seek knowledge to be known by others, that is vanity. There are those who seek knowledge in order to serve, that is love. And finally, I think since we're at the Lumen Christi Institute, um, it's only fitting to let Thomas Aquinas have the last word. Um, And this is a quote from the Summa Theologiae, uh, since to love God is something greater than to know Him, especially in, in this state of life, it follows that love of God presupposes knowledge of God. And because this knowledge does not rest in creatures, but through them, tends to something else, love begins there, and thence goes on to other things by a circular movement, so to speak. For knowledge begins from creatures. This is science, by the way. For knowledge begins from creatures, tends to God, and love begins with God as the last end, and passes on to creatures. Thank you.